This is episode number one with Ben Whitehair. Vision of what that could be, and I'm I'm so grateful that I knew, you know what, this isn't normal, it doesn't need to be that way. And ultimately it was an, an act really of self-preservation that led me to leave stories that I made up as a kid of, okay, that must mean that either I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, or my mom wouldn't do this, I'm a bad person, or whatever else it is. No matter what happened, what was going to happen moving forward was up to me. So whether or not those things were fair or acceptable or any of that, it didn't matter if my intention was what I was going to create moving forward. And so... Welcome to Claiming Your Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Franny Nicole. When we are born, we are not told about the struggles that life will present and how it will affect us within. Over time, we begin dealing with the frustration, the loss, the huge obstacles and roadblocks that life inevitably puts in our way. And for some, this is a breaking point. And for others, this is where they thrive. Each week, we'll bring you the breakdowns and breakthrough stories from some of the most influential people in their fields. It is these stories of redemption we hope will resonate, creating a space for that is powerful, productive, and life-changing. Because when it all comes down to it, all you have to do is claim your truth. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Franny Nicole, and I'm going to start off each episode with a weekly mantra. Our brains are just like a light switch. When we're off, we don't see much, but when we're on, we see everything. The positivity, the possibilities, potential, and perspective. Every so often, we need a tool to help us harness our on power for better focus and enhancing our internal connection. I love mantras because in addition to meditation, mantras are a way to internalize and harness your positive consciousness and your true nature. So to begin, today's mantra is, I exist. Repeating I exist during your morning routine helps harness your ability to identify your self-existence. This mantra is a great way to boost your self-awareness and self-esteem. As you silently say to yourself, I exist, you're activating your present moment awareness of yourself and all that you are. Use this mantra when you're feeling defeated, underappreciated, or needing that reminder that we are all connected in some way. This is probably my favorite mantra by far that I've used, so I'm glad to be able to share it with you today. If you haven't subscribed to my podcast yet, please do so now and write a review once you're done with this episode. I'm so thrilled to be able to introduce you to my first guest, Ben Whitehair. I met Ben about a year ago and he just wowed me with everything he does and has done. So I knew when I was putting this podcast together, he was going to be one of the first guests I wanted to have on my show. Ben is a champion for social change through his art and his business. He's a working actor in film and television in Los Angeles certified business and mindset coach, and a successful entrepreneur. Recent credits include a major guest star in Sci-Fi Z Nation, a recurring guest star on TNT's Pilot Monsters of God, Better Call Saul, Grimm, and Manhattan, and The Night Shift. The feature film Gold with Matthew McConaughey, and he has starred in the major motion picture Amelia 2.0. When not on set, Ben has helped thousands of actors by coaching actors, creators, and businesses to create the life or company of their dreams. Ben specializes in the dance between the nitty-gritty tactics, tips, tools, and strategies and the deep work to cultivate a healthy, happy mentality. His coaching focuses not just on how to reach your goals, but getting underneath any limiting thought patterns your shitty committee has convinced you are real. 
He co-founded his first company in college, which went on to save college students nearly $30 million. He subsequently started a web design company and ultimately transitioned it into business growth consulting and a partner in the premier social media management firm for entertainers. He's a SAG-AFTRA board member and chair of their next-gen performers committee, co-founder of the LA Actors Tweetup, and co-taught a graduate class at UCLA on social media and the business of showbiz. In true Colorado fashion, he was a homeschooled cowboy in his youth, then graduated valedictorian of his high school. Ben graduated from CU Boulder with degrees in theater, political science, and leadership. And no, his hair is not white yet. Before I give away everything he has to share, let me go ahead and bring him on. Well, I appreciate you sitting down with me for this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, Ben, what are we celebrating today? What are we celebrating today? I, we're, I mean, I'm celebrating that I'm alive. I, I had hot yoga this morning. I went to hot yoga, which I'm obsessed with. And thinking about, I mean, when, I, when my alarm went off, my body was wanting some extra sleep, but my mind was committed to creating energy and exercise. And so that's what I did. And I'm celebrating that I have a, have a body and a mind that can do that. It's way better than the alternative. That's wonderful. I know when I woke up this morning, I was not thinking hot yoga. That was definitely <laughs> not on my mind, but it's a good idea. I think that's great too. What are you celebrating today? I actually have never been asked that question before besides mm-hmm. it being my birthday or an anniversary or mm-hmm. a new job. So I'm celebrating being a mom. Yeah. <laughs> Having two crazy children to slice apples for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a gift. Yeah, their health, celebrating their health. That's my health. Yeah, it's so easy to take things for granted. Uh, I was, the power went out of my apartment last week and it was just such a reminder of like, oh my God, there's so much that I do with electricity and what a gift to have it almost always. <laughs> and when is absent, it was such a reminder of like, oh yeah, it's so great to be able to just walk in my house and turn my lights on or heat food or <laughs> all these things that I take for granted. That or have Wi-Fi. Have Wi-Fi, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, I did get my laptop up and connect it to the essentially the Wi-Fi via my phone. So I was also grateful for 21st century technology. <laughs> the hotspot. Exactly. Well, let's play a little 20 questions, huh? Let's do it. Where did you grow up? Well, I, I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado, uh, in the suburbs. And we grew up basically in your traditional middle, upper middle class suburban home with the white picket fence and a golden retriever and 2.3 kids. I mean, I guess technically three kids, but, uh, <laughs> and had a really interesting dynamic, but a fairly traditional childhood up until really up until my parents got a divorce. But I will, I will also say that even before that we started homeschooling. And so I was homeschooled and we adhered to a philosophy called unschooling, which is a very self-taught, self-motivated, self-driven approach to education. And so as distinct from this idea that, Hey, I'm a teacher and I have facts that I'm going to share with you and you're going to learn, it's really more of a facilitator. And the idea, you'd be like, oh, your mom taught you? Kind of, but not really. It was more that my parents were facilitators of knowledge. And the question was, what do you want to learn? What are you going to teach yourself? And that was what guided our education. And it really created a foundation of curiosity and passion that has served me very, very well. Why did your mom want to do that for you guys? Like what was well, behind I think- that? Part of it was that my my sister was about to be the third kid in private school, and that was getting excessively expensive. So I think that was a motivation. But really, she had read a book called the Teenage Liberation Handbook, uh, and then you know my dad read it as well. And and in her early life, my mom was the kind of person who you know she'd get a bee in her bonnet, as they say, and would just 
take off running with that idea. And so she was working. She was actually the youngest deputy state treasurer in the country. She was working basically for the government in Colorado. But to have kids in school, as as many families and mothers experience, you know, her whole salary was essentially going to childcare. And so this idea that it might be fun to stay home and and start this new journey of of homeschooling us, which which she did, and ultimately was a, a total gift. Grew up in the suburbs of Denver, and then my parents split up. Her eventual second husband was a was a cowboy living out in the middle of nowhere, Elizabeth in Kiowa, Colorado, for anybody who's driven out past the cows. How old were you at this point when the second husband? My parents got separated right before I turned 12. And so then basically, basically when I was 12, we moved out to uh, the boonies and lived on a ranch. And I went from a complete city kid with soccer and swim team and a suburban lifestyle to living on a ranch and learning how to ride horses and rope and ride bulls and muck stalls and do all of the things that, uh, that one does on a ranch. Is there a reason why you didn't have the split time with your dad as well? So I did. We would we would spend every other weekend. Actually, it was it was a trek because it was really we, we we moved out to the middle of nowhere. So it was you know an hour drive at least into town. So every other weekend we'd spend with my dad, and then every Wednesday night my mom would drive us up, and then we'd spend the night you know have dinner with my dad, and he'd drive us back to the ranch afterwards. And and then we had part of the arrangement was every. Every, basically every couple of months we would have like a 10 day period with my dad as well. So, you know, we were still living in, in both places, you know, I still had okay. a, a city life and experience, which was really lovely. It gave me the ability to see both worlds in a way that allowed me to be intentional about what I've wanted as an adult and experiencing the, the country life and more to the point, a much lower income and poverty and, and a different experience of money in life in that world, while also still seeing uh, an alternative, uh, ultimately was extremely powerful because it, it gave me the experience of, of seeing both and knowing that in a lot of ways it is a choice and I can choose what I what I want. So that's really served me as, as an adult was I was able to see very different worlds. So you weren't completely secluded out there. For some reason, no. I thought you were. So I was just like, I mean, well, what happened to your dad? <laughs> most of most of the days, yes. I, you know, uh, and it's certainly, I mean, we would, we would take a monthly trip to the Super Walmart. That was like the big deal was like, ooh, it's our monthly trip to the Super Walmart, you know, where we could buy our, we were allowed to get one two liter generic soda that was like ours for the month. And, uh, and we do all of our clothes shopping and all those other things. And the day, the day that I realized that I was, I mean, I think the technical term is white trash was we took a, a special trip to the super Walmart beyond our, our monthly trip. And my, it was me and my stepdad and went to super Walmart. And as I was watching the three items go down the conveyor belt, my life was flashing before my eyes. We were purchasing a case of Budweiser beer, a case of shotgun shells, and a case of hemorrhoid cream for the ringworm that the cows had given my brother. It was watching that, wearing my cowboy hat and my belt buckle and my Wranglers. I was like, I this is not the life that I want. This is really not the life that I feel like I have chosen. That was the jovial side of oh, it was a much more challenging family environment that ultimately led to my moving out of the country and back in with my dad. What was a daily routine like living on the farm? It was a ranch as distinct from a farm only to say that it was mostly animals. So, okay. you know, basically all day, every day was taking care of animals. And the challenging thing for anyone who has uh, lived in that experience is that animals don't care what day it is. If it's Christmas and Santa has come, the horses don't care. They just want their food and water. And so every, every morning it would be out. And we were in Colorado, so there's a lot of 
weather conditions. So, you know, it was taking pickaxes to break ice off of water and spending hours a day feeding and taking care of the animals. And I, I will say I learned a lot. The piece that was challenging. So my, my stepdad was brilliant with animals, but not so great with humans and, and ultimately was a, was a deeply abusive alcoholic mentally and emotional abuse, physical abuse. And so it was interesting because we both gained a really uh, healthy work ethic, which then also got pushed into an unhealthy side as well that was really ab- abusive, essentially. And it's been interesting to navigate that as an adult of, you know, a lot of the things that have got me the results in my life that I'm so proud of come from a very deep work ethic that started even before I was on the ranch. I mean, both my parents growing up were very, you know, committed, uh, effective human beings but that really took a whole other level on the ranch and just that day in, day out grind of no matter what the circumstances are, you know, the animals don't care. They, if we don't do our job, then they're going to die. And so took that in as a, a really valuable lesson, though it, it did certainly get pushed to an extreme. What was your relationship with your mom during this time for allowing, you know, your stepdad to have such a control over you in a positive or negative way? Did you resent her? I, you know, it's interesting because she really was exceptional as a mother, I would say, particularly up until the divorce. I mean, she was present and loving and cared about what we were up to as kids and created experiences for us and uh, as good a childhood as anybody could want. It was looking back, I don't know that I was experiencing it at the time in the same way with the perspective I have now, but it's very sad to me the route that her her life then took. And so, I mean, at the time... I ended up really very much in the middle of her divorce with my dad and that I became a lot of, you know, the one that she would come to confide in. And so it really, I really grew up faster than I think that I would want my own kids to grow up. Uh, I'm grateful for the lessons it's taught me from, from that experience, but I really was thrust into the role of an adult at, at a very young age. And, and then over the years, my mom became less and less, uh, mentally sound and less and less present. And, you know, I I don't know if for anyone who's experienced uh, abuse, whether from a family member, from a relationship, you know, the abuse cycle is, sadly, it's pretty textbook. But one of the things that I understand having now gone through it is that it's a slow process that ramps up from day to day. And I think it's very easy looking on the outside, we say, oh my God, how could somebody be in that situation? Why didn't you say something? Why didn't you leave? And having gone through it, it's very clear to me why that doesn't happen because not only is it challenging to do so, and there's often a lot of fear, physical danger, or otherwise that can happen in reporting that, but any particular day doesn't look that different from the day before. And had it started out at the level of abuse that that it gets to, of course you would leave. If you know on the second date someone throws a glass and is screaming and drunk, you'd be like, okay, I'm out. There will be no third date. But it does, It never happens that way. It's, you know, abusers are charming and charismatic often, and there's a lot of qualities that are very attractive. And then over time, the the control and, and abuse ramps up to the point where feels normal because it's not that different than it was the day before. And our bodies, our minds acclimate and accept that as, as what's normal. And I'm very grateful you know, as a, as a kid that I had an outlet that I had my, my dad's house, frankly, and that I was able to see both from my upbringing from, you know, my life until I was 12 and 
the life I was able to see, you know, every other weekend at my dad's house, that there was an alternative, that it didn't have to be that way. And it took many years for me to embrace that that was the case, but I'm, I'm deeply grateful because many, many people don't have that. You know, it really is all they know, which makes it that much harder to leave the situation because what would you leave it for? There's no vision of what that could be. And I'm, I'm so grateful that I knew, you know what, this isn't, this isn't normal. It doesn't need to be that way. And, and ultimately it was an, an act really of self-preservation that, that led me to, to leave. It's kind of like battered woman syndrome. And that's mm-hmm. all, you know, it's hard to walk away from someone who's abusing you so bad because you have nothing else to compare it to. And you're just like, well, this isn't so bad as and you keep going back to it. Yeah. And as, you know, as kids, it's challenging because there often are, are fewer choices, you know, leaving. If you're a kid, you don't have the same autonomy or resources to be able to, to leave. And so I, you know, to your previous question, I did come to resent my mom for that of saying, Hey, like you didn't, you know, you're supposed to be my protector and the person who's there for me. And you're in my experience, allowing this to, to happen and to continue, you know, we would, Mike would go to jail and, and then, you know, a few days later, week, week later, he's back in the house and, and the cycle would repeat. And so that was, that was challenging, uh, to say the least, to navigate like, okay, what is, what does that mean? And the stories that I made up as a kid of, okay, that must mean that either I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, or my mom wouldn't do this. I'm a bad person or whatever else it is. Otherwise, you know, my stepdad wouldn't be behaving this way. And so looking at all of those stories that I made up have been really what I've worked hard to unpack as an adult, because those same coping mechanisms that were so supportive as a kid, not so helpful now that I'm an adult. And what I see often with the people that I work with or or just people in general is that, you know, as kids, we create these ways of navigating whatever world we're in that often are really effective. It was not a safe space for me growing up, especially during those teenage years, to be open and vulnerable and share my emotions. It wasn't a safe space. And so I learned to build walls and shut down and just work that much harder and try to be the best at everything that I was doing to mitigate pain or being yelled at or whatever. And at the time, that was a really effective coping mechanism that got me to where I am. And it got me through that really challenging situation. What happens then is that those same habits will pop up in a romantic relationship or in my business or as an actor or at an audition. And it's that same, the 14 year old version of me saying, Hey, we've got to be protected. Don't, don't, open your heart and be vulnerable when literally my job as an actor is to open my heart and be vulnerable. And so it's the practice of reminding myself, okay, thank you, 14-year-old Ben. I really appreciate you wanting to protect me. This isn't my mom. This isn't my stepdad. We're in acting class. We're on set. And my commitment is to practice vulnerability, openness, whatever whatever it is that I'm that I'm up to. And that's that's been the process of transformation for me. I think a lot of kids, that's the only way for them to survive. Exactly what yeah. you just said, just to create a space where you can make it through the traumatic events that you're, that are happening yeah. to convince themselves that it's, it's okay. And then it continues on when they don't realize that they're still protecting themselves when they no longer need to. Yeah. And how do we as adults then nurture that child that's still inside of us and let them know that it's safe and, and to make different decisions to start to me, it starts with awareness that I can be aware of, oh, that's that same habit that I have as a kid. Oh, when I feel scared, I tend to shut down and run away. Oh, 
when I'm feeling unsafe, I lash out or whatever it is that we create. And so the first step for me is always awareness of noticing those things that I'm doing. And then the gift of that is we can practice making a different choice. Like, okay, I am in a different place and I can choose something different now. I think that's great. So was your dad only that way with, I mean, your stepdad only that way with you or with all your siblings? With all of us. I was the oldest. I am oldest. And I, I will say I'm I'm grateful. I think I had an easier time navigating that partly just because of the age I was when things happened. I think I had a little bit more wherewithal and experience that I, I didn't experience quite. The, the trauma didn't impact me as much as it did my other siblings. I think also part of that is genetic. I, I don't have the suicide gene in my opinion. Like I, I really do think there's a part of that that's a uh, genetic piece where I've been in situations as the, as a kid where I remember thinking, oh, this is when people think about suicide, but it just doesn't, my brain just doesn't go there. Um, and that's not the case for, for much of my family. Did your siblings go through something like that? Yeah, both of them did, particularly my brother. He, he really navigated a tremendous amount of trauma and depression and, and frankly got, I would say even more abuse than, than I did. And it was also challenging because so eventually I moved out of my mom's house and in with my in, in with my dad in the city and just you just me to okay. start. Now ultimately that led the way and and it was a year and a half later my brother moved in with my dad and then a year year and a half after that my sister ended up moving in with with our biological dad as well. So I'm I'm so grateful that I did that. I will say that it also was something that as kids I know it really created a lot of pain for my brother and sister that I wasn't aware of at the time. You know, my leaving, I think they felt abandoned and unsafe. And how could you leave us in this of horrible course. situation? And, you know, so that's been part of my journey as an adult is working on healing that aspect of my relationship with my siblings, which we very much have. We're all very, very close. And I will say perhaps the thing I'm most proud of my, so I, I actually have two sisters. I have my sister, Nikki, who's four years younger than me. And then we have a, have a half, technically she's a half sister. She's, she's my sister, but so my mom and her second husband had a, had a daughter, my, my sister Felina, who's beautiful name, 21. It is a beautiful name. She got it. There's a Marty Robbins song called El Paso that any people who are into super classic country music will, will know. And it talks about this woman named Sit. Felina in the song. And for any Breaking Bad fans out there, actually, the series finale is named Felina. It's spelled differently than my sister spells it, but it's an <laughs> anagram of finale. And they play that song, El Paso, by, by Marty Robbins in this, the final episode of Breaking Bad. So if anybody wants to go watch that, that's where you can get it. And, she, and, and <laughs> this is how country we were. We were listening <laughs> to that cassette tape in our Ford F-350 pickup truck in the parking lot of Super Walmart, which is where she got her name. We were in, in our truck listening to Marty Robbins. And that's when uh, they, was your they mom heard pregnant at the time? Yeah, and, deeply okay. pregnant, and <laughs> and the song came on like, oh, that's such a pretty name. Maybe we should name our daughter that. Well, that's, and that's a great memory yeah, to that's have. How she, that's how she got her name. Oh, I'm sure she feels very special to have something like that to attach her name to. Yeah. Besides, you know, the other stories yeah. that she probably yeah, that's been challenging. I, I and what I would say is that just to finish, I I realized I um went off on a tangent. I, I tend it's to do okay. that. Is that <laughs> the thing I'm most proud of is the relationship with with Nikki that I've created because. We, growing up, we were four years apart. And by the time I moved out in with my dad, um, you know, we basically just didn't grow up together in the same house for much of our childhood. And by the time she moved in with my dad, I was off to college. So we just had a lot less experience. And I think the age difference and otherwise, you know, I loved her. She was my sister, but there was no relationship. And, you know, as an adult, one of the, the gifts is that we can choose, well, we can choose, frankly, everything. And having gone through my personal transformation and my family having gone through it as well, you know, my sister is now one of my very best friends and we talk all the time and I'm probably closer with her than, than maybe anyone. Um, and it's such a gift to, to have that relationship. Yeah, it's, 
it's nice to have because not a lot of siblings get along and or even speak to each other as adults. So it's always great to cherish something, a relationship like that. Yeah. And realizing that we can reinvent that, you know, even if we didn't have a childhood where we were close or if we did, you know, that that both takes nurturing as an adult and that we can change that, you know, or anytime we want to transform our relationship, it is always possible. And I think it is so easy to believe that it's not. And I get it. I, so I didn't talk to my mom for six years. My mom, among other things, you know, that she had tried to hire someone to kill my dad. And there was a lot of very serious uh, abuse in the household and with my brother and all these other things that ultimately. But no I, one actually came to do that. Uh, no, thankfully, although, well, not that I'm aware of. Uh, I mean, my dad is still living, so. Um, but there was. Oh um, wait, your mom hired someone to kill your dad. Dad. My biological dad. Yes. Oh, I thought. Yes. I'm thinking Mike. Your no, no, no. Yeah. So Mike, just... my stepdad. No, she. Uh, and it sort of came out. I mean, it 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 appears that Mike was involved in that as well. Um, and it was all of his. Uh, well, thankfully, she was going to. <laughs> so yeah. So thankfully, happen. that didn't happen. I, I the the death that did happen. So Mike ended up committing murder suicide, a a number of years after he and my mom split up. So I moved out out of my mom and stepdad's house in with my dad and started talking to my mom less and less. And then ultimately we, we stopped talking. I didn't talk to her for, for six years. And then she and my stepdad got divorced and then he was dating a woman. And I, and I believe I found out recently, I think they were actually engaged um, and had, had an incident where they uh, had some sort of fight and she drove off and he chased her down and ran her off the road and, and sadly killed her and then, and then killed himself. Looking back, it's almost, it's just kind of, crazy to think about but I, I do think there were there were times that it, that very easily could have happened to us it is not at all beyond the realm of possibility that 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 would have happened so I'm very grateful that it didn't but all of all of those things uh to say led me to not talking to my mom for for six years which was the healthiest thing for me at the time one of the things that I felt like was I really wanted to speak the truth and be able to talk about the things that had happened and what was going on and my experience of my mom was that she she wouldn't and essentially would refuse to you know those those topics were all off limits so it was interesting because if you if you had met my mom she was a you would be like oh that's such a lovely nice woman and she was smart and all of those things and then back home under the surface there was this tremendous pain trauma you know her not speaking with her kids that that people would have no idea about so that was also challenging is you know feeling like sort of in this bubble and one of the things that happens if you're not, I say crazy as a, as my sort of definition of that is in, not in relationship with reality. I think that sort of word gets thrown around and can be challenging. But you know, when I say crazy, I mean, not in touch with reality. And for people who are in touch with reality, when you're dealing with someone who's not, it can be really frustrating. And one of the things that often happens is you start to doubt yourself because you're saying, you go, well, okay, if there's no way that they would act this way, maybe, maybe I am messed up. Maybe I did do something. Maybe there is something wrong with me. And so Crazy people get us to think that we're crazy, and that's really challenging. And as as a teenager and a young adult, what I was feeling like was I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I, it was not healthy for me to to stay in that situation. So stopped talking for for a number of years, which uh, again I think was was the healthiest thing for me to do at the time. What I will also say though is that years later I went through uh, my own personal transformation. I, I did this. Uh, program called MITT. And that was really the catalyst for me to heal those wounds that I had and to start to practice forgiveness of her, forgiveness of myself, and realize deeply that no matter what happened, what was going to happen moving forward was up to me. So whether or not those things were fair or acceptable or any of that, it didn't matter if my intention was what I was going to create moving forward. And so I ultimately reached back out to my mom and started talking again and it wasn't it wasn't like oh i have my mom back like 
uh, I experienced the emotional death of my mom early, you know, when, when we stopped talking for all those years and by the, I mean, even at that time. And then certainly later when we reconnected, it was a very different woman. It wasn't like, oh, this is the mom I grew up with and, and we're back, but I'm so glad we reconnected. And then almost five years ago now, she, she passed away at the hospital when she was, when she was dying. It was the first time that all four of us kids were in the same room in 10 years. And there is no way that that would have happened had myself and my siblings not gone through this transformational journey. And it's been really a remarkable example and reminder to me, even as I'm talking about it of what is possible that at the time felt absolutely impossible. If when these things were happening, when I was going through this during my childhood, if someone would have told me, Hey, it's all going to work out and you're going to be able to transform your relationships and go on to do all these things. Like, I don't think I would have believed that that was possible. Anytime that I find myself saying to myself, Oh, that can't happen, or there's no way, or it's impossible. I am constantly reminded that that is almost never the case that there even if we can't see it that there are possibilities and that often we're the ones putting the putting the restrictions on it did you just wake up one morning and say i need to take a personal development course or what drove you to sign up for something especially one that's not as well known as other ones well i'm, I'm very uh, i mean it depends how woo you want to be about it i was very i was introduced to it by a by a friend and i had i mean i've been a very self um aware person and have cared a lot about self-development, even from when I was a, a kid and a teenager. I mean, I remember reading basically, you know, self-development, self-help books as a teenager and, and then into college. And I was among other things, I, I minored in leadership. And so I was in this leadership program in, in college. So that was part of my world. And I was surrounded by the most amazing human beings, both in high school and college, like my best friends to this day, who are all very, very self-aware, passionate, connected, curious individuals. So that was part of my my context was self-exploration and how do we be better people and how do you make a difference and all of those questions. So it wasn't something that was foreign to me. And then uh, a friend, someone, well, now a close friend, but I only met her once, ended up going through the the program right after I met her and called me up one day, she's like, Hey, I know you're like super in like all that leadership stuff and whatever. And I did this thing. And it was like the most amazing thing ever. And more than anything, I could hear the change in her. I'd, I'd met her a, a few weeks prior at the behest of a, a, ca- a casting director who was a mutual friend of both of ours who had introduced me because my friend was in sort of a rough place and depressed and not really living her best life. And my, my casting director friend was like, Oh, Ben, you're super positive. You should go meet her. That'll be, you, that'll be great. <laughs> I was like, cool. And, and so I did. And ultimately, you know, she's the one who, uh, deeply changed my life by just bringing it up. I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds cool. And, uh, I don't know that I really even had any expectations, uh, going into it. And then, I mean, it's been the thing that absolutely changed your whole family, changed my whole life, my whole family. Yeah. I think that's awesome. I think everyone should take, it should be a high school course. I think this leadership program, absolutely, even just the basic yeah. should be mandatory to go to college or just to graduate. Just to exist in the world. Yeah. I've, I've, a lot of my friends are working on that, on, on getting it into schools. Um, one of my one of my buddies uh, is is working with uh, one of the cities south of LA on doing that and, and getting, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just emotional intelligence work, mm-hmm. which interestingly is a lot of what we do as actors. I mean, I will say that as far as a practical degree, the the degree I have in theater is has been remarkably practical for my business endeavors, my entrepreneurial endeavors, and just being a human being because so much of it's about emotional intelligence, communication, understanding ourselves, understanding other people, and it's such a crucial skill. I mean, all of the studies are without question demonstrate that EQ, emotional intelligence, is far more important than IQ in basically every way that you could measure success, whether it's, you know, 
successful relationships, happiness, money, all Agreed. of it. Agreed. And I feel like we have, when you're leaving high school, you have 18 years of baggage that we're going off into the world with. And if we're able to learn how to let it go and release it and know that that's not who we are, it's... I think we will have more successful people in this world versus complaining, depression, and people who don't even try. Yeah. And understanding that those things are are a choice. And I'm I'm optimistic because I think that increasingly these are things that we're talking about. But, you know, we do not yet live in a society and a culture that says it's okay to feel your emotions. I I see this especially for men. I think a lot of these things are similar, but I will say that particularly for men, we're taught from an early age. I mean, I was on the ranch, right? You know, buck up, real men don't cry, get back on the saddle, don't show your emotions. I mean, that was the very consistent training. And so... You know, it's I, it, it was uh, paradoxical to me that as I embraced vulnerability and my emotions, that is when my business took off, for example, as I started to really step into vulnerability, compassion, all of those other pieces. My, my acting career skyrocketed, the business that I had at the time doubled, and it's something that I continue to remind myself that it's actually vulnerability is, is a strength, not a weakness. And, and I have found that it's, I, I facilitated a workshop on vulnerability actually, uh, and the tagline was, open your heart and live your dream. And that has very much been my experience. Well, it sounds like you're living the authenticity life. I do my best. And it's, I mean, it's a, it is an ongoing challenge. I mean, I, I actually, I had this. So, in, so I, I mentioned, I think at the top, I'm obsessed with hot yoga. And I was in, I was in hot yoga a couple of days ago and we finished the class. And so we're all in Shavasana and it's like, okay, this is my, you know, this is my time for the day to meditate, to really just be present and in my body. And it's one of the most powerful experiences I have every week. And there was a woman in class who started to cough. And in my head, I was like, oh, that's really annoying. Like, I'm just, I'm in here, Shavasana, I'm trying to meditate. Like, why is this lady coughing? Like, get some damn water. And she kept coughing and kept coughing. And I started to like, my ego was like super annoyed. I'm like, how dare this woman have a coughing attack during my Shavasana? Like, this is my time to relax. And this is on Valentine's Day. So I was like repeating the mantra to myself of like, choose love while I'm uh, admonishing this person in my mind for coughing. And then I, I, as I was telling myself to choose love. I was like, okay. You had this racket forming. (laughs) Yeah. What does it, you know, the, the shitty committee that, that forms in our brain. I said, okay, well, okay. What would it actually mean to choose love in this moment? And so I stood up and, and went over to the woman and I said, you know, Hey, are you okay? And she wasn't, she was like, no, like, will you, you know, pound my back? She was like, and so I did and, and just sat with her and, you know, kept my hand on her back and she was able to like come back and breathe and, and was fine. But it was just such a reminder to me of like all the work that I've done. And, you know, my first reaction when she was coughing was like, how dare you interrupt my meditation when really the, the, this was a woman who was suffering and was choking and, and, and also, you know, I was the only one who went over to her and I almost did it. That's not like, oh, I'm some amazing person, but just that like, we often tell ourselves that we don't have permission to do those things. You know, it, it can be, it is, it is not the normal choice to step forward and, and help someone in need. support someone to take charge of something, to see that something's not working and to say something, to be willing to, you know, have, because of, you know, those same fears come, Oh, well, what if, what are people going to think of me? And what's the other person going to think of me? And what if that, and I was like, well, I don't know, but this woman clearly is having like a coughing attack and I should make sure she's not like going to die. But it's so easy not to. And and so, you know, that's the practice. And I find that it really is a practice. The more that I practice those decisions with myself and others, it makes them that much easier. But all of that to say, it's not like 
I am I am healed uh, and never have my my nerdy moments. We're all learning every single day and, and getting better. Yeah. Well, I think that's the that's the that's the hope anyway. I think something I heard recently about how how much does someone have to suffer for people to be humane? Mm. Like how much suffering does, needs to happen for someone to step forward? Just exactly like you just explained in your story. Like how much suffering does someone need to go through before someone steps up? Yeah, and I you know, what comes up for me when you share that is that I also lived for a long time under the belief that success was only possible if I suffered a tremendous amount. And this happens for artists, right? You hear of like starving artists. And I think especially in like a high achieving culture, we often have this view that you need to suffer in order to succeed. And A, I've come to believe that I don't think that's true. Uh, And B, even if, let's say, let's say that it's true that one has a quota of suffering that they need to have gone through in order to then have whatever we've decided that success is for ourselves. What if, what if we've already met it? I remember asking myself one day, I was having basically this conversation with myself and I said, you know what, maybe, maybe I've needed to suffer to succeed, but even if that's the case, maybe I've suffered enough. And now maybe any additional suffering is unnecessary. I had a mentor once who who said, you know, there's no extra credit for the struggle. There's no Award. trophy. There's no <laughs> bonus gold star on your gravestone that says, here lies Ben. He achieved all these things and really suffered for it. He really was miserable his whole life. Good for him. There's no extra credit for the struggle. That's There's no uh, added benefit to that. And so it's been a really, that was a powerful breakthrough for me to have and to continue to live of going, you know what? The struggle is optional. Effort, I do think is required and perhaps extraordinary effort depending on the results that we're committed to but effort is required but the struggle is our relationship to that effort you can be putting forth a tremendous amount of effort and it can be with ease and joy and fun and laughter or it can be a slog and painful and miserable and that's a choice that is absolutely up to us whether we choose for it to be ease full or a slog well if it's a struggle and you don't want to do it is it something that you should even be doing to begin with i think yeah i think that's also a very valid question of am i perhaps choosing to do something that i that i don't want to do or is not in alignment with what i care about and you know i i'm i end up coaching people often when they're deciding over whether to leave a job, for example. And and I say there's basically two choices if you're miserable in, in anything. One is to transform your relationship to that thing, which is possible. And and the other is to choose a different thing. And it depends on the situation. I think sometimes it's both, you know, sometimes we just run away, go, well, it's this job, I'm gonna quit this job, and then you go off somewhere else and you're still miserable because it wasn't the job, it was, it was you. you. So sometimes it's just transforming our relationship to that thing. And sometimes it's also, yeah, you know what, this is maybe not a decision that is serving me anymore. And maybe it did, right? I think it's often challenging to let go because there was a time often, there's a reason we made a decision in the first place. And maybe the job was amazing, or maybe a relationship was extraordinary and no longer is. And so when we find ourselves in that spot, I I find, I ask myself, okay, is it that I get to transform my relationship to this relationship, this job, this whatever? Uh, or is it perhaps time to choose something else? It's a great way to look at it. To go back to the way you were brought up at school and being homeschooled, yeah. I have a little little envious because I hated school. I hated middle school, hated elementary schools, had like two friends, mm-hmm. bullied like crazy. So I, I'm envious because it's just, w- would my life be different if I was homeschooled? Obviously it would be, but would I still have those stories that I created for myself because of how horrible people are to each other and then when you went to go move with your dad 
being thrown into high school and missing out mm-hmm. on middle school. And I know you said you went to some elementary school, but what was the shocking truth of going into high school from being homeschooled for so many years? The shocking truth was that I was better prepared than other people. <laughs> well, it's interesting because people all especially will often say, well, what about your social life, right? There's this idea that what you're missing out on by homeschooling is, is a social life. And I will ask people back, well, how was your social life in middle school? Did you love middle school? And 99 out of 100 people hated it because often kids are horrible to each other. And whether you're tall, short, black, white, puberty, not any of it, you get made fun of. It's a challenging environment, right? Teachers are underpaid and overworked. Classrooms are too full and and people don't have the tools or these emotional intelligence tools to be able to navigate that. And so the gift was that I skipped it. And one of the things that I see, particularly, in, I, I watch it happen in middle school. Ken Robinson has one of the most popular TED Talks that's out there called Why, I think, How Schools Kill Creativity. And he talks about this phenomenon where, you know, if you go into an elementary school, if you go into a first grade class and you ask all the kids in the classroom, hey, who here can draw? Every kid raises their hand. Oh my God, I can draw, I can draw, I can draw. Okay, who can sing? Oh, I can sing. Oh, la, 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 I can sing. Who can dance? Oh, I can dance. Everybody, people, you know, they're up in the uh, next to their desks dancing. Fast forward, go into a freshman high school class. And ask those same questions. Who here can draw? Maybe one kid raises his hand and he probably like is a brilliant artist who just won a contest. Who here can sing? Maybe two people kind of raise their hand and they're probably brilliant singers anyway. Who here can dance? No one's going to get up and start dancing. So what happened? What we know is that we don't lose that. We still have all of the same creativity, exuberance, drive, whatever that is, are all still part of us. But the culture around us shifts and makes it not okay to do that. And so much, I think, of adulthood are all of us working to reclaim those things because it's what we admire in adults. But as teenagers and when we're kids, I I find that often middle school and, and high school beats that out of you. And, and we often lose that curiosity, that zest, that willingness to fall on our face and go, you know, we get so concerned about what other people will think or what it will look like. And I get it. That's a, that's a legitimate challenge. And one of the gifts of homeschooling was that I skipped that. So by the time I got to high school, I hadn't been indoctrinated to the idea that like, it's not cool to raise your hand or it's not cool to be smart or just shut up and get through. I was curious and homeschooling cultivated that curiosity. The whole foundation of the education was, what are you most interested in today? Let's go learn about it. And let me help facilitate your learning about that. So I, and that's one of the reasons why I, I went to high school is because I wanted to learn more. That's ultimately why I left my mom's house. It really wasn't the abuse. That was a huge factor, but I was planning on staying. And, and basically I had decided to go to a school 10 miles away out in the boonies and stay there, but it was a bigger high school. And my mom, who had said I could go wherever I wanted, when I told her where I wanted to go to school, she said, oh, well, you know, how are you going to get there? I was like, well, well, you would drive me. And then at the time, I was only, you know, a couple months away from turning 16. And I figured we could take one of the 18 cars we had broken down on our on our property. And, you know, I would have a way to, to drive after after I was turned 16, like two months later. And she's like, oh, well, I, I won't do that. And at the time, I was so hurt, mad, and, and I think made up a lot of, created a lot of resentment and anger towards my mom. But thank God she said that because that was really the catalyst that got me out of the the boonies and, and back into uh, the city and more than that into a life that where I could thrive. I mean, I had a miraculous high school experience. We didn't have clicks. It was an amazing school. I got an amazing education. And part of it was that I was coming into it excited, curious, wanting to be there. You know, I mean, I don't know that it's very often that kids are in a situation where they go, yes, I really want to go to high school. Like I'm super, like I'm choosing this school and I want to go learn. And this is why. So coming in with that mentality is what allowed me, I think in a lot of ways to succeed. It's where I found ultimately a passion for theater and a, and a community that was inclusive that way. I was a huge nerd. I did every single student group. I was valedictorian. And, and a lot of that came from the curiosity that was cultivated uh, because of homeschooling. What would you recommend a mother, a working family who can't, don't have, 
access to be able to do homeschooling, to have that creativity still in their children? Yeah. Well, I would say, I mean, one, it may be more possible than one thinks because I think off the, the thing that often keeps people from doing it is this idea that, oh, I'm not smart enough. I don't know what to teach my kids. And so I think I would just push back on that idea that you don't actually need to know. Your job is to teach the kids how to learn and to facilitate that for themselves. So you don't have to be brilliant at calculus in order to make sure that your kids can learn it. It's about finding resources and, and supporting them in guiding their curiosity, especially at, at younger ages. So one, I would say people are far more capable than they think they are uh, at doing that. That being said, often people, single parents and jobs, and I totally get it that, that legitimate reasons why that might not be an option for people. And I guess what I would say is that the practice of cultivating curiosity and a passion for learning is absolutely within the control of the parents. So even if kids are going to school, A, there are other schools out there, you know, Montessori type situations and others that might be a better fit for a, a particular kid. And I think the other side of that is that parents can engender a creativity. I mean, one of the things that we see with um, success later on is, uh, or, or advancement in school is how much time outside of the classroom kids spend learning. And I would say the number one approach that we had in our homeschooling was that everything is a learning opportunity. Just because you're in a classroom doesn't mean that that's the only time when you can learn. And so, you know, it was very unstructured. It's not like we sat down and read textbooks and this was, I mean, I guess it was all homework, (laughs) Uh, but there wasn't homework and assignments the same way. It was just that like life is a learning opportunity and everything we're doing, you can be learning. And so, you know, whether that's, let's say, for example, so my brother was fascinated by the civil war. So we watched all the movies about the Civil War and we watched Gettysburg and we read the books and we studied the people and we used that, you know, to teach math. And then we went back and went to the battlefields back east and we went to Gettysburg and we got to see it. And that experiential side of things is so valuable. And I think if I could boil it down for parents, I would say one, find opportunities to create experiences where you're children can be experiencing the things that they express interest in because I think we learned so much more and same as adults I just think we learned so much more by experiencing than simply you know reading it out of a book and the other is to trust the curiosity and passion of your children I remember when I was when I was going to public school when I was in I think first grade or maybe it was maybe it was when I was in second grade the teacher told my mom that she was really concerned about my reading because I only wanted to read the there's a particular series of sports books there were these sports mysteries that I was reading but I was I was again I was like in first grade reading it like a fifth grade level and my mom was like no you know what like it's fine he's tremendously passionate about reading if this is what he's passionate about reading then let him read that so what if he's not reading the the other book and so cultivating that curiosity is such a gift and it translated my my dad did a really exceptional job of that particularly again when we were living with him as as teenagers of going you know what are you passionate about and let me continue to facilitate that my sister loved cooking since a young age she wanted to be a chef and to this day she is she is a a chef and so he worked on getting her it kind of started as basically an internship but it very quickly turned into her working for one of the top 10 pastry chefs in the country at like 15, I think she was. And she was like, you know, working in a kitchen and getting that experience. Um, you know, I started to fall in love with acting among other things. And so we went and, you know, I got to go see plays and meet other actors and finding that. And so creating those opportunities for your kids, I just can't speak more, more highly of it. The reason why I asked you that question is because I see it. I have front row seats with my mm-hmm. own children. And if you were to ask them now, they wouldn't be, you know, I love to dance. I love to drive. And mm-hmm. they used to be. And my kids are in third and first grade. And they're not even in middle school to not answer those questions. Like they're in it now where they should be still excited. And, and I don't know if it, that's my doing like if I didn't help them with the creativity where they used to love to dance and they used to love to draw and now they're just like robots so I'm not sure if it's the way that the district or the school that they are in pounds in the information to mm-hmm. kill that creativity I see that it's gone 
Yeah. So I'm curious of like how to bring it back without their, all the creativity is gone. Yeah. Well, I mean, I will say that I'm I am not a parent, so I, I can't speak I mean, to it, it from just, that standpoint. And it, I have just tremendous respect for parents. So I say that as a caveat, I will also say that as as a professional creative who did not like I wasn't that kid in in high school or otherwise that was like the super artistic theater guy I was I was the super nerd I was math and science guy go to a, a you know got an award from Harvard and was on a ultimately decided not to go to Ivy Leagues but like that was my path I was that guy and, and I've chosen uh, a life of creativity partly because I want it to my life to force me into that side of things that I'm, I'm not necessarily inclined to do I, I do sometimes you know my default setting is to be logical and think about things and that this idea that there's a right way to do it and to be smart about it and blah 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 and so I'm practicing every day as as an actor and an artist to let go and let loose and and embrace that side of things. To parents for that, I would say, you know, whatever opening your kids provide to practice leaning into that, you know, and I think it's tough because kids may be passionate about video games. Great. Well, let's find a way to give kids an opportunity. Like now there are ways you can program your own video games. You know, for me, I was super passionate about technology and, and video games. We got a computer early on and I ended up learning to build a computer. My parents were like, okay, you're really into this. Great. Let's help facilitate that. I Like most kids, I sold my champion sheep and I took that money and I bought parts <laughs> to build a computer. But my parents were helped facilitate that passion, right? So I learned what it was to like build a computer and that led to a passion and, and ultimately life skills that I was a web designer for a while and now I have a social media company and an entrepreneur and launching a web platform for for actors and creatives and a lot of that came because there was this opening of curiosity that I think my parents you know the, the kids may provide that crack of the door and I think our job both as parents and just as society when we see that with anybody is to let people you know let that door open a little bit and and explore it that much more as a parent I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can and especially learning about how you were brought up like they can fulfill any anything that they want to do versus just being you know this is the path that you have to take and it's too cool to raise your hand kind of yeah. mental or it's just not cool to be smart or it's not cool and I want to make sure that I'm doing my part to let him them know yeah just because I just like I can't homeschool my kids I teach them the way I want so they're gonna to have to go out into the world and I have to let it happen but I just want to make sure that I'm the right way yeah well that's what i'm saying off topic i just i just learned so much about how like the way your thought process was because of homeschooling and then yeah. going, going into the school on a different mindset as any, everyone else because you didn't have middle school you didn't have that competition amongst each other that people have at that age yeah and i i mean first of all the fact that you or anyone who's listening to this who has that desire to do that for their kids means you're already in a really good place if people want to make sure that their kids have that experience, like you're already, you know, at the top because frankly, not all parents do um, or they've, you know, let other things become more important. So anyone cares about that is a that's like an imperative starting point is to have that desire to support kids that way. And I think for me, as I look at it, the the piece of homeschooling that I think can apply all of it is just that. This idea that everything's a learning opportunity. So great, you're out of school now. Learning doesn't stop. And like, what are you passionate about? And what are we doing with the time that we have together? And I, I will also say that it, I think so much of it comes from example. And I see it particularly with women. I think there is more societal pressure for women to give up the lives and the passions that they have in quote unquote service to their children. And I will say that, you know, looking back, I feel like I would have learned so much more had my mom continued to pursue her passions than I did from her any time that, you know, she told me to pursue my passions. So and, lead by example. Yeah. And I think seeing that is so valuable of like, oh yeah, like 
and it can be hard, right? Okay. Yeah. Mommy's taking, you know, my mom was a marathon runner, uh, as well. And like, that was, you know, something that she did. And that was like, I'm now seeing an example of my parent who has this goal, who wants to achieve this thing or who's passionate and interested about something. And they're out there going and, and doing that. And I think seeing that is so valuable and, and particularly for, for women, I think it's that much harder. I think there's so much more pressure to be the one that sacrifices to give up the time, energy, and passions for the kids. Um, but it makes me so happy when I see anybody who's supporting anyone, but especially when I see moms who are living their passions and starting a podcast or running marathons or doing whatever it is that they're interested in because kids really do notice that. And I think it's tough as a parent because the kids don't always express that. I know for my dad and talking with him about his experience through all of the craziness of our childhood, you know, there were years where he went and had no idea if what he was doing was working. Years where he was showing up in an environment that told he wasn't welcome. Years of continuing to drive to the middle of nowhere to see his kids in a rodeo. I mean, he's a lawyer. There was n- he had no context for that life and spent years not knowing if it was going to pay off, not knowing if it was an effective thing to do. And it wasn't until much later that as adults, we look back and go, yeah, good, good work, dad, that, that worked. But, um, it can be really challenging in those years sometimes where you go, I, it's a thankless job. Yeah. And I know on horrible days where I feel like they're horrible, it's just, I'm like, okay, when they're graduating college, they'll thank me for (laughs) Uh punishing them for whatever that they did. And it's just, I just have to keep reminding myself that this is for their future, not for today. Yeah. Yeah, which is a challenge and, and it and it works on ourselves too, right? I mean that that self discipline of choosing, okay, I'm going to choose some level of discomfort now for, you know, what I'm working towards in the future. Totally agree, it's hard. And like I feel like every kid nowadays has ADHD because of technology and because their mm-hmm. lack of focusness, because they're stuck on a screen and I'm I'm in it. I'm in that world. So to hear you talk about this curiosity and I'm just like, What is that? Yeah. I I want that. I want that for my kids. (laughs) For being in it. I think it's, I think the piece that doesn't work is to check out and go, well, screw it. You know what? That's just how it is. Yeah. And, and it is challenging. It is tough. It's a daily thing and there's not a magic switch. You know, the personal transformation of ourselves or anyone else isn't generally a thing that happens overnight. And so, you know, I, I acknowledge you for, for being in it and saying, okay, every day, all right, how are we going to navigate it today? What's coming up today? What's something else that I can practice and how can I be in this moment and to do that over time, which I find ultimately I think is the thing that I've seen most consistently lead to success is the tenacity and wherewithal, willpower and the practice of putting one foot in front of the other and taking what seems often like a tiny step every day. And so whether it's with our kids or a business we're starting or our health, you know, I think we live in a society that extols this idea that there's like a lottery ticket winner or that one day all of a sudden we'll have a ton of money or that all of a sudden one day we'll wake up, our health will be completely different or our relationship will be completely different. It just doesn't work that way almost ever. And even if it does, it's generally not sustainable from that point. So that practice of just one step in front of the other, when I look back now it's easy to see like these big jumps, but in the middle of it, you know, I mean, even I see it with businesses. I mean, I've started a number of successful businesses and it was years and years and years of, you know, effort every day. And, and that that's what led to the success, not some magical, oh, I, this thing happened all of a sudden I made a bajillion dollars. Like that just almost never There's happens. laziness. They're just lazy and they just want things to knock on their door versus them going knocking on doors. Yeah. We get lazy or we, or we <clears throat> make up that it's not possible or, um, you know, I mean, it's inertia and I, I, you know, often when I'm coaching people, it's, it's working on like, what is the, what is the most simple action item that you can take right now to move towards your goal, whatever that is. You're asking me. 
<laughs> yeah, I guess I guess I am now. Um, I think what we're doing right now, being yeah. uncomfortable, is to be alive in everything that I'm doing in this very moment. I'm uncomfortable, yeah. and it's benefiting me in the long run because tomorrow I may not be as uncomfortable, and then the following day I may be completely comfortable to where I want to be uncomfortable again. Because in, the more yeah. uncomfortable I am, the more I'm growing as a person. Yeah, I've I've found that for myself. You know, as I've if that done, made any sense. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, I'm it's like <laughs> being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And and as we do that, it means that our comfort zone grows. Yeah. So with all the work that I've done, my comfort zone has grown and I catch myself now. It is very easy for me to stay in my comfort zone because my comfort zone is pretty great and there's lots of great results and cool people and like my life is working within my comfort zone. And so I, I find it, it takes even more for me now to step outside of that because, because I've done the work and because my comfort zone has expanded. And so it's that continual practice of, okay, what can I do now to push myself out of it? I'm sure moving to L.A. was completely uncomfortable growing up in Colorado your whole life. You know, interestingly, it wasn't. I think partly because I had made such a drastic transition in high school. When I had left the ranch, being in the middle of nowhere, back to the city, you know, that was such a big transition that the idea of moving to L.A. like was like, oh, I don't know. Like, there's millions of people there. It can't be that bad. The weather's lovely. I'm looking forward to that. And, you know, it's interesting. I think my relative naivete or not even so much naivete as it was lack of knowledge about what it means to be an actor and what it takes to like build that career. Um, ultimately serving because I went in with no expectations. I wish I would have had more information. I'm, that's one of the businesses I'm working on right now so that other people can have the information I wish I would have had. The lack of expectations really served me as I, you know, I didn't go to LA thinking, oh, well, I'm going to get famous in six months and book a pilot. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to leave, which is insane. Actor, the, there's this idea that that happens so often. And, it, you know, to me, that's like saying, okay, I'm going to go work at Starbucks. You know, I'm going to be a barista. And if in six months, I'm not the CEO, I, I guess. I wasn't meant to work in coffee. It's like, that's in, like that's craziness. No, You're like, limiting yourself. That's insane. And, and it's not going to happen in six months. Like, that's just not how it works. But so... It couldn't happen in six years. <laughs> yeah. So letting go of expectations <laughs> yeah. and practicing the enjoyment of the journey around it. And like, okay, what do I want my daily life to look like? And how can I create a life that I deeply enjoy on the vast majority of, of days. You've been in Los Angeles 10 years now? 10 years last week. Oh, well, congratulations. Yeah, I just had my 10-year LA anniversary. <laughs> From Ben 10 years ago to Ben today, who are you now? Oh, wow. If you're looking back, this is a good like anniversary to have yeah, to talk about. I, Milestone. I would say that the biggest shifts for me have been my experience of the world being so in my head and dropping down increasingly into my heart and into my body. And I would say that there's a level of groundedness and presence that I've cultivated now that are very, very different, probably because of the work that I've done. I mean, I remember, weird to think about, I remember the way that my brain was operating 10 years ago. And like that monkey mind was just going constantly, like my brain was just a, a million miles a minute the all the time. And, and part, and that led to, I mean, various things in, that were unhealthy in relationship. And I was a workaholic in a way that was very unhealthy. And just my brain was constantly going. It was really hard for me to be present. And so a lot of the work that I've done has allowed, like the, the biggest difference that I notice is my ability to listen and be present in a way that I just was not happening 10 years ago. I think that's something everyone should go through. I mean, realization that the 10 year mark of who they were and who they are now. Yeah, I do. Uh, every year, my one of my best friends from high school, he and I drive back to Colorado and we spend the whole trip, which is like 16 to 20 hours, depending on it was Thanksgiving. the snow on I-70 uh, for Christmas. Oh, for Christmas. So okay. we drive back to Colorado and then we'll, we'll drive back from Colorado to, to LA and we spend that whole time. What ends up being 40 
and then ultimately uh, closer probably to 60 hours doing a big annual review where we look back at our previous year and in all domains of our life, health, family, relationships, money, service, travel. And we look back at, you know, what were the highlights, what worked, what didn't, what were the lessons? And then we set uh, our vision and goals for the coming year in each of those domains. And that has been a life-changing experience, particularly as an entrepreneur, because there are fewer automatic check-ins. You know, there's not performance review with a boss. And even, especially being in LA with no seasons, like time can just float by and not change anything. So having that annual check-in and, and we meet, you know, on a regular basis as well to check in throughout the year, but having that very deep annual check-in of like, let's really deep dive into where are you in life? What's working? What's not? What gets to be adjusted? What's the, what's the intention? What's the focus for the coming year? And that level of intentionality has been life-changing for me. And actually I have, if anybody wants, they can go to my website, benwhitehair.com and I've, they can download a free the annual planning blueprint that we use to do that annual review. They can just download for free on my website. That's been life-changing for me. You just read my mind because I'm like, how do we bottle you up and give it out to everyone? <laughs> I was like, why isn't any, everyone like Ben? And how can we create that in everyone? An annual check-in, like annual with themselves and what worked, what didn't work, what they want to change and what they can, you know, see themselves continuing. And yeah, I don't do that. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever done something like that with well, someone. Well, I've found or... it to be really helpful. Helpful to have a friend who knows me really well, who's willing also to call me out on my shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah. So, hey, last year, I, you know, we're going through our notes from the previous year. Hey, happened to notice that you, you know, said you were going to launch this new business and I can't help but notice that you didn't. Let's dive in, right? And it's so easy for that to just skate by and we make our own excuses and life and there's, there's always a reason that something could not happen. So having that level of accountability with someone who's there to deeply hold me accountable and in a loving way and, and support me in moving forward has been a, a big part of that. And just the check-in because life can go by and things happen and you know we navigate death and new jobs and financial challenges and health and all these different things. And so having that level of intentionality around what we're up to, uh, to me has made all the difference. I think having that annual check-in is good because you might have forgotten to do something or because of, you know, life yeah. ha- when life happens, you know, dreams get pushed aside. And then 10 years later, you're like, wait, 10 years ago, I had a dream to do X, Y, Z. And yeah. it's been 10 years it's that I just remembered I-, I wanted that. And to have that annual check-in, you're able to help make those Yeah, it reminds me of those things. Happen. Yeah. And the other piece of that has been prioritizing. I mean, having done it now for... <laughs> a decade, one of the things that that we've learned is massive progress in any particular domain of our life. Generally, there are only one or two, maybe three domains in any given year that will have massive progress. We will often move forward and make progress in all domains of our life. But that like life-changing, oh my God, my business is at a whole new level. I met the love of my life. I start, you know, I oh God, I started a family. I finally took that trip I've been wanting to, you know, whatever that massive jump is, the human brain overestimates what we can do in a short amount of time and underestimates what we can do over a long period of time. So, you know, that looks like, oh yeah, today, no, I can totally, I can go to the dry cleaners, then I'll call my friend back and I'll touch base with my mom and I'll get that uh, computer thing fixed and I'll do it. No, you can't. There's no way all those things are going to happen today. The brain overestimates what it can do in that short amount of time. But over the long period of time, we underestimate what's possible. When I look back at how far I've come in the last decade, in the last 15 years, I mean, 15 years ago, I was just leaving a, I was a homeschooled cowboy in the middle of nowhere who was like a geek building computers. Loving sheep. Like, I hate sheep so much. (laughs) She knows this. 
She's goading me. Uh, <laughs> sheep are just obstinate. They're, if they're just standing there, they're lovely. But for those of you who are thinking about going into sheep training as a career, don't. <laughs> if I could so give you dumb. any advice, that's what I would. That's what I would tell you. So having the priorities, because again, like I said, you know, over the long period of time, there's so much more that we can accomplish. And having perspective that you know, my belief is we can do everything. We just can't do everything all at once. So being mindful about what our priorities are, that I can look at, you know, in this annual check-in and go, okay, what are my priorities for the coming year? What are the couple areas that I really want to put, you know, massive focus in? And that doesn't always happen, you know, the way we plan it to. I, you know, I had years where I was not thinking about massive, you know, transformation with my family. That was not the stated priority at the beginning of the year, but that's what the year became about. And and I'm so grateful. I mean, that was, you know, clearly the best possible thing that could happen. So having that level of, of intentionality and prioritization and I have found that that makes decisions throughout the year that much easier as well because I, I already have a baseline to decide if something is in alignment with what I declared that I wanted or not. Otherwise, it's like, well, I don't know. I'll kind of take it and thing and this thing happened and I guess maybe I'll do it and I'll try it. And then years go by and we never really did the things we wanted to. Speaking of that, I'm thinking about what I was doing this time last year mm-hmm. and how different my life was. And I was training for an Ironman. Yeah. And I'm, I think we're coming up to our one year of friendship. Yeah. And next month. And... I'm a completely different person. Like that person is like no longer is like inside me in a way, but that person mm-hmm. is like gone. Like yeah. completely changed. And I remember sitting down with you in November and talking about how 15 years ago I was in radio production and I wanted to have a talk show. And you're like, well, what are you doing about it now? I'm like, huh? <laughs> what do you mean? Like that was just what I wanted to do when I was in college. And you're like, yeah, but you can't do it now. And it was just like really stumped me because I was just like, why not? Why not? Like, why aren't I? Like, if I wanted it back then, if I really wanted it, then I still want it. Yeah. So here we are. Yeah, I know. And look at you. It's so amazing. It's <laughs> such a great example. Later, three months later. That, that, wait, four, like, four, three, four months later yeah. since we spoke. And it right? was just a conversation about what I wanted back then. And life happens. Mm-hmm. And it took me 15 years to do something that I wanted 15 years ago that I was going to college for. Now... I know. And what's so great is that you're doing it because I think it's so easy to make up that it's too late or that it's not going to happen or, oh, well, that was 15 years ago. So you know what? Uh, just uh, screw it. Well, like, I got, it's never going to happen. I was making up the excuse of it's too late and people have 700 podcast episodes now and I'm too late to the game and no one's going to want to listen to a thousand inspiring self-help mm-hmm. shows. And I'm just like, well, I just have to be me and if. You know, I get those five people who want to listen to her. That's five more people than I had yeah. yesterday. So yeah, exactly. why not? And I think it's easy. You know, the, another way that we often talk ourselves out of things is that we make up that, you know, well, if it's not a massive success within a month and it's not worth doing and it's like exercise. It's like, well, if I don't see results within a week, then like, what's the point? Yeah. But if you can go to the gym for a week and you haven't been working out for however many years, like you're not going to see results. But if you keep going you can completely transform your entire appearance, body, and health. And I say that as a, as a reminder to myself and, and others to, I think, let ourselves off the hook for it needing, for whatever it is that we want to do. The way that it's going to become excellent is through practice. And the way for it to not become excellent is to not do it at all. That is a guarantee that it's that it won't be excellent. And Ira, Ira Glass has a, a video talking about you know our taste Uh, And the thing that often happens is we get into something because our taste is really good. You know, we get into making art because we have, oh, wow, like I I know I have excellent taste and know what great art is. And then when we try to make it, it doesn't match what our taste is. 
but that the way that that happens is by making art over and over and over again and by making bad art and by, you know, the way that you build a muscle is by literally tearing it. When you lift a weight, you are literally tearing the muscle and that's how it gets stronger. Agreed. And like I said, when we started this, I'm completely nervous. So I'm like, okay, when episode 30, 50, I'm like, okay, I'll get there. But really, it's just to go with the flow and not set those expectations and not to have any just so I went in, I'm going in with if I have five listeners, I'll be happy. Yeah. And, and who knows <laughs> that maybe it's one listener and it completely changes their life. You know what? I agree. It's just like that one listener who needed to hear whoever they listened to that I had on the show could save their life or make yeah. them rethink a decision that they were set on or. Yeah. And we may never know. I had that happen that I, Quick story is, uh, I, so I interned for Congress in Washington, D.C. In, in college. I was deciding if I wanted to go to the Hill and, and work for Congress or move to L.A. and be an actor. And I, I heard there was a shortage of white guys out here. Yeah, I think you and, made the right choice. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was being facetious, by the way. And a woman who I was working with who was interning with me at, in Congress, long story short, years later, sends me this message and basically said, hey, you know, when we interned together, I felt like I – needed to go into politics like that had been my whole life it's what my parents wanted me to do like i feel like that's what i should do and you still can by the way yes and i'm not gonna butcher his last name but arnold come on he was governor. the governor <laughs> i'm going to make global warming my bitch. pretty sure he was governor uh, so so my friend i was interning with you know she felt like she had to go into politics like that was the life she was on but she didn't really want to what she really wanted to be was an artist and when she heard me talking about moving out to LA and being an actor and that that was, and then saw me do it, she said that that is what inspired her to go be an artist. And since then she's become uh, essentially a famous artist. She's been written up in every single major newspaper, New York Times, and she's toured all over the world and is, you know, What's world her renowned. Uh, Alexa Mead. Alexa Mead. If you go to Alexa Mead art on Instagram, she does these incredible, Oh, I'm going to Google her the second we get off of this. <laughs> brilliant art. Like she's a- extraordinary. And, you know, I was just so touched because I had, I had no idea that I had any kind of impact on her life. I'm very grateful that she reached out and that I know that because often it doesn't, you know, we, we may smile at someone at the gas station in a way that makes their life better in ways that we will never know. And I choose to believe that, that that is the case. And I've been fortunate enough to see the impact uh, over the years that have been good, tangible reminders that that's often the case that I, if I'm being my best self and if I'm being open and vulnerable and loving and committed that I may not see every impact that that has but I I know that it can What's have a ripple massive effect. impact. Just, yeah. We're constantly moving and touching people. Yeah. In a positive or negative way, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, no our our impact is truly profound. Well, you have an incredible story in life and just hearing from everything that you've had to say, when do you think the moment of you realize that your story wasn't yours and you wanted to claim your truth. For me, just from hearing mm-hmm. everything you said, was at the super Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, this isn't my life. It and, was, it was mean, around it, that time. Well, at the time, I was 15. It felt like, okay, I have to change my situation. Like, I can't keep living like this. It's not going to work. So I don't know that I brought to it the level of like, thought and intentionality and other things that I feel like I maybe have now. 
but it, it really was the decision to move out of the the country and go go back into the city and and to go to a big public high school. Well, and, that was the first step of claiming who you're meant to be because yeah. it, it wasn't meant to be on the ranch. Yeah, That's and that was sure. that was what was so out of alignment. I mean, not you know certainly the abuse and the traumatic family situation was was a part of that, but beyond that, I mean, you asked about you know the, the transition from homeschooling. The harder transition was to go from living in the middle of nowhere to like being back in the city and like being around people, which I love. I'm I'm a city boy at heart. I'm count me in on people and delicious restaurants and really good lattes. And that for me at the time as a 15 year old to go, you know what, this life that I'm living is not anywhere close to in alignment with what I'm capable of and what I care about and what I'm passionate about. And, and ultimately it was my mom and, and my dad who taught me those lessons. You know, I mean, it was, I was sort of pushing against her essentially when I made that decision, but you know, to her credit, she was the one who taught me to follow my, follow my passions and follow my dream. And that when I chose to move out of my mom's house and then the ensuing a success. And again, I'm so grateful as, as challenging as my mom and stepdad were at the time. I mean, my dad was exceptional and, and certainly he's learned a lot and grown as well. But, you know, I mean, the first month when I went to the big public high school, Littleton High School, <laughs> he never told me, but he made a deal with himself that he was never going to go to bed before I did. And that first month, there were many, many nights where we were up to one, two, three, four in the morning because I was transitioning into what does it mean to be going to a big school and and what I wasn't used to was that much structure and that many due dates and like oh my god I have three papers so he was helping you yeah so he was helping me and supporting me and helping me with my essays and figuring out how do you write a chemistry lab report I don't know what's the format that you're supposed to I don't know and so he you know would help me with that and I think that level of you know just him being there made a huge impact it's a great support system I'm definitely going to adopt that into the structure that I have with yeah. homework and well and I felt like I had a partner you know I knew that if I had a we problem alone, or a question yeah. that you know he was there to support me and you know his commitment fed into mine as well it was not an option not to do it and partly that was me like that's the kind of person I am and and partly you know that was just sort of the context that we created I think that's a lot of what we can do as as parents and as leaders is we create the context for people to succeed and you know how do we create the environment the container that says you know, this is this is how we behave as people. This is how we operate as human beings. This is how we treat one another. You know, this is the context. I remember one of the rules as a kid was if you started a, a sport or an activity, you weren't allowed to quit before the season was over. You didn't have to do anything you didn't want to, but you had to finish the season. So if you signed up for baseball and you're halfway through and it's really hard and you're not doing well, you can't quit. This is not an option. You're not allowed to quit. At the end of the season, if you want to choose to do something different, then that's completely Can't acceptable. And you're, yeah, but you're not allowed to quit halfway through. It's kind of hard to give up on yourself when you have that support system, like rooting for you and standing by your side yeah. versus, you know, your parents being asleep and you're struggling in your room and yeah. you're like, I'm done. I'm, I just can't do this. And you go to bed versus like your dad's like, no, yeah, I'm, I'm here. here. Like, do? Let's yeah. do this. How we, we're going to figure this out together. And I think that's yeah, a I'm great, so grateful. great tool to have when raising kids is to know that you have that support system. Yeah. And even just to show up, my dad would tell you, you know, one of the ways that to his credit, he's raised three, if I may say so myself, wonderful children. Um, and really four, he's essentially become the father to Felina after both her parents have now passed away, my mom and stepdad. And, you know, a lot of it is just showing up over and over and over again and showing up and, you know, as kids knowing that someone's there. I like it. I want to do that for my kids. Like you're inspiring me to be a better parent and you're not a parent yet. Well, I, I well, acknowledge the work great, that you're doing already. You're going to be a great dad. I look forward to it one day. What are you currently working on now? Like what's on your schedule? What's on your plate? I have a lot on my plate right now. <laughs> I uh, One of the things I've learned is to stretch my plate larger and larger such that more fits and to delegate. I'm doing a couple of things. I have a social media 
company. Um, I'm a partner in that where we basically manage and grow people's Instagram, particularly in the entertainment industry. So do that in the social media space. And I'm also working with uh, the guy. I, I started a company in college with my buddy, Will. We were actually ended up saving college students like $30 million. And, and I did that. That was my first oh, wow. big business endeavor. But so he and I are doing consulting for, for businesses, a lot of small and medium-sized businesses, uh, entrepreneurs around growing and scaling their businesses, a lot of things around incorporating company culture, values, and systems, all the things that it takes to actually grow a company and ultimately for people to leave the company and have it continue to succeed. I mean, often what happens is an entrepreneur will start a company, it's going great, but there's no way for them to ever leave without the company falling apart. So working with them to uh, actually build a company that is sustainable without them. So doing consulting, work with him on that. And then a project I've been passionate about launching for a long time that I'm now uh, actually, I think by the time this airs, it, it will likely be public. So my buddy and I are creating an online academy for actors. It's called Working.Actor. If you go to Working.Actor, that's the website. And so it's basically everything that an actor needs to go from being a good actor to actually being a working actor. All of the things around the business side of it. Uh, and even if you're not an actor, we have a lot of great resources in there around goal setting and mindset and values and all of that. But so launching that, then there's a there's a free version that's got a ton of information if someone's wanting to be an actor and get started and then a premium side for people who are like really serious and want to be a working actor. That's awesome. Um, when do you sleep? <laughs> um, I, I'm sleeping less this year than I have in the past. It's interesting. Like when I when I was in college, I slept like four hours a night, which and then I realized that like that is not healthy and sustainable and I'm nope. committed to living to be 100. So I get to actually sleep. So I'm doing a much better job of that. Uh, though there's been there have been uh, slightly less sleep this year than last year. It's crazy when people say I'll sleep when I'm dead. It's that like, was well, my senior quote. You're gonna die pretty soon. Because- I was so I was such a believer in that, and I was part of that like cult of like hustle and workaholism, mm-hmm. and and it's tough because a lot of benefit came from that. I mean, that's why I did so well in high school and college, among other reasons. Um, was my level of commitment, but it was unsustainable, and it took a lot of scientific research for me to read and be like, oh yeah, I'm wrong. I'm totally wrong. Sleep is absolutely important. And, you know, so much of it's like, look, if I were really effective, then I'd be able to do it and still get enough sleep every night. If I'm as cool and great as I think I am, then I'd be able to get it done and still actually get sleep. So anyway, yes, well, you I, can I get am, more done with sleep. Exactly. You're that, we're that much You're more, more productive. productive. We're focused. And and it's also been, you know, me working on you know, I had a belief that I had to do everything myself. Again, coming from childhood where it felt like I was, you know, had to do anything, had to be all on me. And as an adult, realizing that's not the case. And so learning to create partnerships and be intentional about who I'm choosing with that, I think it's the most important part of business. But having business partners, having people to delegate things to, a team, you know, that's the way to really make it happen. Agreed. Yeah. I think, like you said, it got you through a lot, but it it's not the way to go. Yeah. Not if I'm committed to living to 100, which I am, at least. <laughs> me too. If you were to go back and tell yourself one thing to your 15-year-old self, what would that be? Or just to today's youth, to every 15-year-old out there, to yourself, to your inner 15-year-old, and to all the 15-year-olds out there, what is something that you want to say or could have said? I would say that it's okay to experience your emotions, that you're allowed to make mistakes and have challenges and all of the challenging emotions that come with that. And I would say that everything that you want is possible if you practice putting in the effort, choosing joy, and repeating that over time. That's wonderful. I think everyone needs to live by that. It's 
a reminder to myself as well, <laughs> including today. Yeah, it's a, definitely you have to remind yourself because you can get lost. Yeah. A lot of people get lost. Yeah. And the nice thing is then we can be found and choose something else. Exactly. What is your go-to restaurant in back home? Mm. Go-to spot when you go well, back home? Well, it's kind of cheating because my sister is a chef, as is her boyfriend. And this is in Denver. In Denver, yeah. And so she's now she's about to move to they're about to move up to probably Seattle. So I won't have this back in Denver. But right now it's whatever my sister is cooking is definitely the go to. <laughs> so that's always my favorite. I you know, my again, my sister's a chef. My brother's actually very competent in the kitchen, as is my dad and, and my mom. So I, I never really learned how to cook growing up, but I'm very good at eating. I was gonna say, when are you gonna make me something? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I I mean, if you want some macaroni, I make a mean <laughs> mac and cheese, little protein powder in there. But uh, cooking is not my forte. Ordering off a menu, choosing food, I'm quite exceptional. Digging it. I'm digging it. Okay, okay. Fair answer. So what is the best avenue uh, for people to get a hold of you? I always say I want to continue this conversation, but we, you know, have exceeded the time limit. We've gone, we've gone quite today. over. I appreciate people's time and attention, really. I, you know, people have a choice to be doing anything with your time. And so thank you for choosing to listen in. Um, the easiest way is probably online. I'm at Ben Whitehair on all social media. I'm probably most active on, on Instagram. Like I said, you can also get in touch with me on my website. I've got the annual planning blueprint there, benwhitehair.com. That's whitehair like it sounds, W-H-I-T-E-H-A-I-R. I'm easy to find online. So shoot me a note and let me know how you're living your passion. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much for everything you spoke about. And I look forward to hearing what happens for you this remainder of the year. Me too. The pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me. Well, that's a wrap on episode one. Thank you so much for listening till the end. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share with your friends and subscribe so you can keep listening each week. Let me know your thoughts on what you heard this past hour by leaving a review or you can contact me on claimingyourtruth.com or message me on Instagram at Franny Nicole on the go. I look forward to hearing what you all have to say. Thank you for being here, and I can't wait to share the next episode with you.